This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. And for the next couple of days, we are going to delve into what we learned during the pandemic and what we're still learning. Today is a three-part interview with one guest, David Zweig. He's reported for New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Free Press, and other publications. He was, as we'll get into, part of what's called the Twitter Files. I don't know if uh, among you, my listeners, that has a good or bad connotation, but I vouch for Zweig's reporting. He was the first in the pages of New York Magazine, the first to at least bring to my attention the differences between the U.S. and Europe when it came to masking school children. And he put his finger on the very true conclusions that masking in schools among little kids, wasn't showing much of a difference. So we're going to use that to get into all sorts of questions about the pandemic, masking, the great Barrington Declaration. You know what that is. He was right there in the middle of it, as you will hear, and what he thinks about the quality of the discourse, the debate, the functionality of our systems of actually having good discussions and coming to conclusions that are useful as opposed to just blowing up people's spots, as they say. So join me now for a long visit with David Zweig. COVID-19, you've heard of it, simultaneously a pandemic of the coronavirus and a pandemic of misinformation and recrimination. Now, I bet 95% of people hearing the word misinformation are nodding, but they'd be split on which way the misinformation runs. Maybe not you, my audience, but if we played it to all of America. So to lay the predicate, what I'm saying here, one, vaccines work, but not perfectly. Two, lockdowns worked for a time, but came with costs. Masks work to some extent. And I'll give you one unqualified statement. Ivermectin doesn't work. Don't rely on ivermectin to cure your COVID or to prevent getting it. But beyond where we are, there is the effort to look back and assess what we got right, what we got wrong, why. We're clearly not up to that task. I'm thinking maybe we won't be for two decades, and not because the evidence will become crystal clear, but because passions will cool. So what I've done in my journey is to seek out guides, great reporters, epidemiologists, public health officials, and David Zweig is one of the best. He established himself as an authoritative and indispensable voice on COVID, uh, mostly to me in the pages of New York Magazine. He kind of bravely pointed out hey, you know what? No kids in Europe are wearing masks to school and they're doing better than we are. He's working on a book, looking back, 
but I can't wait for that book to come out. So I enjoy it. So I invited him here. Hello, David. Welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Do you agree with uh, all my statements in the beginning, all the qualified and even the unqualified ivermectin one? It was a great setup. I mean, the the the... Yeah, the ivermectin thing is is a whole other thing. Although the the one, and I haven't looked into it, the one critique of the sort of pro ivermectin people is that the studies that show it didn't work, they didn't use the right dosing. That they're like, mm. they, oh, of course it didn't work. You needed to triple the dose of, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I think I know. Yes. So you let's know. say, yeah, let's say we woke up to the reality of where COVID is exactly now. Deaths where they are, but the vaccination available, treatment options available, some treatment options, and we hadn't been habituated to it as we have. We hadn't gone on the roller coaster ride. What would we rationally be saying and thinking about the exact state of COVID right now? How should we be reacting to it? As far as like policies or behaviors of the public, what should we be doing right now? Sure. It just, yep. There was somehow a vaccine and it started hitting a week ago to the extent that we're experiencing now and deaths where it is now. Would this be a front page story in every oh, paper? That's interesting. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if if this never existed and all of a sudden we were seeing the rate of hospitalizations and fatalities, it would be a story because that didn't exist before. So <clears throat> it's not like it's just completely faded into the background. Um, so I, I would certain certainly think it would be a story because people would be saying, what is this thing? But that's different from, from but that's not the reality we're in. And, and there's a lot of indications that COVID is not any different from a whole variety of other things that people, and particularly when you think about children, you know, other sort of infectious diseases that they generally face. So in that regard, it's only, it would only would be news because it's, if it were in your scenario, you're describing new, but it's not news in the sense that it's this overwhelming, uh, you know, public health danger relative to all sorts of other um, public health dangers that we all face. What do you think the, let's call it the scientific community is still getting wrong or not perfectly grappling with when it comes to COVID? There's a group of people who adamantly believe that we still should be wearing masks, that masks should be mandated in schools. That's 100% not only appropriate, but the ethical and right thing to do. They believe people should be, you know, staying home. Everyone should be tested. You know, they believe that the, that absence of those policies and behaviors right now is a complete failure of our government and our society. And there's a surprisingly, you know, very, very um, uh, active and almost, I would say, you know, zealous group of people who believe that. The broader public health community, I think, by and large, has walked back from that type of attitude. They recognize it is not spring 2020. They recognize where we are. And, um, and, you know, we're seeing the coronavirus as it is, or the specifically SARS-CoV-2 fading into, you know, the background with all the other viruses we face. Yeah, I've talked about some of those voices. Uh, Greg Gonzalez of Yale is one of them. Eric Feigl-Ding is one of them. And I've been critical of them, but I'm not you and I don't have your level of expertise. What would you say to rebut them if you were in uh, a debate and they articulated, you know, we let's steel man their case. They articulated, especially Gonzalez, that we owe this. Not everyone is not immuno 
healthy, and we owe this, if we care about the large percentage of the population that isn't, we owe this to them to mask and test and take all the precautions we have been for two years. Yeah, so I have a number of rebuttals to that. So the first one is... um, most of these people are complete hypocrites. There are pictures of Greg online, not wearing a mask, going out to dinner with some friends, and he caught a ton of shit for it from his fans. So it's like, you know, they begin to eat their own and every single one of these people, because no one's perfect. And and I shouldn't even use the word perfect. That's not how human beings function. There's just a limit to what is natural and normal to how long people can stay sequestered and continue to, you know, uh, religiously wear a mask at every single. So number one, they're, they're not consistent with their own behaviors in my view. Number two, there is a, and I talk to infectious disease specialists every day. I'm in a group chat with a few of them. Um, so we talk about this all the time. According to them, there is a vast misconception by many people about who actually is immunocompromised and who is at particularly um, vulnerable state for COVID. So there's a really big misconception among the public about how many people truly are vulnerable without any tools at their disposal. Three, if you are- Wait, I want to stop you there. Okay. The misconception is that the public thinks it's higher than the actual number? Correct. Yes. Okay. And what these people like Greg, you know, might say, or there's this guy, Ed Young, who's a writer at uh, the Atlantic, you know, where there's this very large contingency of people who are extremely vulnerable and anything could happen from talking with the, the, the experts who I talk with. And these are people at Harvard Medical School, Tufts and UCLA. Um, most people are not in that position. It's actually much, much smaller than people think. There are many people who believe that they are at great risk when they're not. Either A, they don't have the immune status that they fear, or B, even if they do, we have things like Evusheld and, and other tools to help these people. Um, so that, that that's a large part of it. But let's move to number three, which is that people have always been immune compromised in our society. We've always had, and if you are someone who's undergoing cancer treatment, for example, in your body, your immune state really is greatly weakened, don't go out for that mm-hmm. period of time. Like if, if, if you act, there's one of the greatest um, harms, I think, during the pandemic is one of them, this is not the only one, is that the effectiveness of masks was so wildly oversold that people who actually, if you genuinely believe that you are at risk, if you get COVID, if something horrible happened to you, if you believe you should not be congregating with people. If you are in that uh, weakened of an immune state, then you then wearing a mask, it ain't going to help you. So we've grossly oversold what this tool can do to help you. So and for people who aren't undergoing cancer treatment, but maybe they, this, uh, you know, they just very, very unfortunately have some sort of status that makes them very vulnerable as a permanent state of being. People like that, unfortunately, have always had to deal with that throughout life. They face all sorts of dangers. COVID is just one of them among many. And the fourth one is the analogy I often think of is that. Highways have a speed limit of 55 miles per hour or 65, depending where you are. Um, If we lowered the speed limits to 35 everywhere, there would be fewer traffic injuries and fatalities, point blank. However, as a society, we've decided that we are willing to tolerate a certain amount of risk and indeed harm, known harm to a certain number of people because we'd rather get to places faster. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of things we do in society where 
risk avoidance is not our prime goal. So that's my biggest pushback against this, this notion that reducing risk to the lowest possible number is the ethical way of being. And it's just simply not true. And we will be back with more of David's Why in a minute. Let me add on, let me yes and your last uh, analogy about highways. Um, let me introduce a normative element to it. You said it's not how we operate, it's not how we decided we should operate. Maybe people will say, well, ca- same with capitalism, but we're wrong. No, it's also not how we should operate. And the analogy would be not only are there highways and we accept some deaths, if someone were to say, but some people can't drive cars or are afraid to be inside a car and they need to drive tricycles. So we need to slow down the speed limit unless we're unethically unconcerned about the tricycle drivers. I don't mean to minimize the people who have who are immunocompromised, but that would be the analogy to slow down all the highways because there are literally some people who can't take the speed of a highway. I love I love what you said about the tricycle. It's not even that some people have to drive slower. Some people can't part, and that that someone would describe that I think as ableism. What you sure. are, what you are. But here's the thing: it's like, and this gets down to you know, this whole conversation about equity, which is you know the big term of the last whatever five plus years. And equity, you know, in my understanding of how it means, is that is that we want equal outcomes for everybody, and that's just not how a thriving society works. Everyone's different. And the notion that to make things equitable as your prime goal, which requires not raising those people up as some of the images for equity tend to like to depict it, where you're giving three people are trying to look over a fence. And what's equitable is you give the short person, you know, they have this big stack of bricks or whatever to stand on. No, equity in many circumstances, like you're describing would be instead of me being able to drive 55 miles an hour. Um, now you're forcing me to reduce the quality of my life down to 35 miles an hour. Now, uh, you know, obviously that sounds, uh, I don't know, uncaring or callous, you know, oh, who cares if you drive slower? But look at society. This is how we function in a million different ways. And the notion that we are supposed to make everyone, should should someone's uh, eight-year-old child um, be forced to wear a mask every day in perpetuity as they grow up in school because there's a kid in their grade who is immune compromised. And this this is actually in the courts right now, Mike. There are a couple cases um, that, that have been based on this notion where I forget which states it is where this is happening, but where some parents of some children, and I don't know the specific uh, medical status of these kids, but they are arguing that it is, and I forget under what law, but mm-hmm. they are arguing that there is an obligation for the school to compel all of the children in the school to wear masks because there are certain kids there who are more vulnerable. This is setting aside, by the way, the actual effectiveness of them wearing masks, which, which is a whole other issue. But let's pretend that they are effective. I'm not convinced that that's uh, you know, the, the appropriate or ethical course of action. What uh, do the studies show are the costs of the kids wearing masks? 
So it's an interesting question. And this is one of the things that a number of people, there's this person, Megan Rainey, who's an emergency room physician, but she's sort of turned herself into a, a COVID pundit. She has a large audience. Um, and a number of other people talk about where they said, there are no harms of wearing masks. Show me a study. And what I like to say is, of course, there are no studies on this. This never would have passed any sort of internal review board. They never to would have allowed kids, this. Right, to make kids wear masks. Right, yeah. So this stuff's yeah. hard to study in that regard, number one. Number two, there are things in life that we value that are intangible, but they're just so obvious. We human beings need to see each other's faces. This is a core essence. We're social creatures. And the notion that a child having their face covered, you know, pretty much for six, seven hours a day, all of their friends' faces covered, their teachers' faces covered, the notion that there is, quote, no harm at all from this intervention to me is so wildly divorced from any sort of like reasonable notion of what it means to be a person. I want to look back, and it seems like at this point we should have more wisdom and more hindsight, but there are things getting in our way. But I do want to look back at some of the what we've learned about COVID and some of the claims, and I want to do it through the prism of a critic of COVID policies, and I use Joe Rogan as a prominent one. I'll say to you some of the things, some of the arguments he makes, and you tell me if uh, these claims are fair. So looking back, he says, we were told that there'd be no breakthrough infections, and then there were. Is that true that we were told that? And what is the state of how much breakthrough infections actually surprise scientists? I mean, that certainly was the implied message, if not explicit message. In the beginning, when the vaccines came out, people were told, this is it. You are protected. You're not going to get infected. There are innumerable, as people like to say on the internet, you know, receipts. Do you have the receipts? Mm -hmm. There are innumerable receipts of public health officials saying you are not going to get infected. Um, they were wrong. That's science. I'm not faulting anyone for being wrong, but they were. And one of the biggest problems to me was the degree of certainty within which many of these pronouncements were made. And it did not allow for any room for things to change, which they did. So I think Rogan was largely correct in saying that. We were told that it wasn't going to happen, and then it did. Sweden's lack of a lockdown was ineffective. This is what this is what COVID or critics of the official response would say. Right. Um, that's false. If you look at the sort of... Ex excess death numbers. Sweden is right in the middle of the pack. Sweden's made some big mistakes. One of the prime ones was that they didn't protect the elderly as well as they should have. And that accounted for a lot of their deaths, um, particularly earlier on. Um, so that's, so Sweden was far from perfect. However, um, there, if Sweden's approach truly was a failure, it would be off the charts. It would be very easy to see um, that, oh, well, it's clear this society, kids, the younger children in Sweden never stopped attending school, ever. And by the way, they didn't wear masks. There wasn't any special distancing thing where you needed to pull out a ruler and keep them. None of that. And you know what the effect was? Nothing. There is no evidence that Sweden did worse off than any number of other countries 
that um, were far, far more restrictive. And we can look at the sort of Florida versus California scenario as well. To me, that's kind of a little bit of an echo of the Sweden versus other countries. In the end, when you look at um, the overall mortality, not COVID deaths, yes. but overall mortality and expected excess deaths, Sweden's right in the middle of the pack. And that's what we really want to look at because one of the big things I'm talking about in my book and that I think about all the time, Mike, is risk was framed in one direction only. How do we reduce COVID risk? But we didn't understand or what wasn't expressed or properly um, you know, put into place in policies are all the risks and harms that happen from trying to prevent this one particular danger. And that's why excess deaths are a good metric to use. Right. So there are, there are things like fewer fewer cancer screenings, exactly. worse mental health, uh, worsening cardiovascular disease. Now, of that, and people were arguing this, and in fact, you know, Donald Trump even said this, and of course, it's very hard to credit anything that guy says after he said <laughs> it's going to magically go away, but yeah. was there any one of those, there was a raft of um, concerns, was there any one of those that really popped and was, um, did it, did uh contribute to much more mortality than all the others? I'm not aware of one particular factor, but we know, as you mentioned, cancer screenings. I read an interesting yeah. study a while ago, even about um, appendicitis, and that there was a spike in more serious cases requiring surgery because uh, people delayed going to the hospital. They were so terrified and made to be so afraid of leaving their home or going into a medical facility. If you're a 15-year-old kid, you are at very close to a statistical zero of, of any serious harm from COVID. But if you have appendicitis, you're in deep trouble if you don't get this taken care of. One thing is to look at excess mortality, because in the end, that's you know what we care about most is is death or, or you know, or rather people staying alive. But what about the long and sort of very nebulous list of things about what we will call quality. It's a quality of life um, yeah. adjustment. And, you know, so a kid who was supposed to be playing football, but the school is closed, the season's canceled. This was this kid's only ticket to getting into college. And so that's not going to show up in an excess death thing, but it's going to show up in some other statistics in some other way where this kid's life was destroyed because he wasn't able to play football his senior year. No scouts came, everything was done, et cetera. I know, but... Even with the cancer screening and the appendicitis mistreatment and everything you're talking about, mm -hmm. February of 2021, there were there were days with 4,000 COVID deaths a day, mm. and the rolling average didn't hit 4,000, but it hit over 3,000. So it does. It's very hard for me. Like if I was a public health official or even had all the data, when we see these bodies in the morgue and also held in our heads the idea that. Yeah, there are probably some add-on effects that we're not seeing quite acutely. It'd be very hard for me not to go with the most aggressive measures or close to the most aggressive measures to stop, to stanch the dying that's happening in record numbers all around us. I think it's very hard for a lot of us um, in our society to accept that some bad things happen that we can't control. And there is a bit of this like technocratic idea where it's like, here's this horrible sort of occurrence that's happening, this, you know, that this virus that's flowing around, it's killing people. We need to do something. But sometimes there's a real hard limit to what you can do. Most medical interventions are not effective. 
Most trials, when they run them for new drugs, they're not a huge improvement over the last thing. Maybe they're not an improvement at all. Many, many, if not most public health interventions, and I have a long list of them that I talk about in the book, are not effective, even though our intuition would tell us they are intuitive. Listen, in the beginning of the pandemic, boy, I wore a mask when I went outside. I believed in it. And it wasn't until I started reading the science, reading all the studies, you know, review from Cochrane of meta-analyses, where they're like, huh, it turns out community mask mandates don't really work. They don't provide. And there's a whole list of reasons why, even though our intuition, it makes sense when you're like, what do you mean? I'm going to have a thing in front of my face, a physical barrier. Of course, it's going to reduce the likelihood. But when you look at it in the aggregate, when you look at the randomized trials on this, there really hasn't been a meaningful benefit ever really been shown for for doing these interventions at a society level. And still more, the conclusion of this uh, massive, let us call it, learning opportunity with David Zweig in one minute. I want to ask about the Twitter files because of not just themselves, but what they represent. And there are elements of the so-called Twitter files, which have nothing to do with uh, COVID, but there are some that do. And this is when Elon Musk invited a number of, I would say, sympathetic journalists to look at the track record of Twitter, the organization that he now controls. And it was to cast the past decisions in a bad light. And I think that uh, the most sympathetic, and this was uh, undertaken by design, but the most sympathetic character, the one where even at the time I said to myself, well, is it so bad that this information is getting out there? Is something called the Great Barrington Declaration. And the there was a Stanford epidemiologist named uh, Jay Bhattacharya who was suppressed. Um, he wasn't silenced, but he was to some extent what they call shadow banned because he and his organization were advocating against the current lockdown policies, talking about the devastating effects of short and long-term public health. Listeners can read the Great Barrington Declaration. It's 513 words, 517 <laughs> if you include the words, the Great Barrington Declaration. And <laughs> the majority of it is advocating for policies, which right now we have, which all states eventually adopted, which are things like those who are not vulnerable should be allowed to resume life as normal simple hygiene measures, stay home when you're sick, let's resume extracurricular activity, let's uh, resume kids going to school. When the Great Bar- the epidemiologists and the doctors who issued the Great Barrington Declaration, of which you were the interviewer and people could go on YouTube and watch you asking the questions, when they came out with their uh, declaration, was there a sense among them that Twitter was trying to, or other social media were trying to suppress the information getting out? I don't know if, I don't, I don't remember anyone there specifically um, mentioning concerns about social media. I think they were concerned. And by the way, when I was there, I did not know there was going to be a Great Barrington Declaration. I was just invited out to, I had, I had, um, interviewed Martin Koldor for an article I was writing. So, you know, we just sort of knew each other at that point. And he said, Hey, do you want to interview some scientists, you know, who have, who are at these elite institutions and they have, um, you know, a bit of a different take on what should be happening than the mainstream medical establishment. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm there. So, and it's just as a side note, but Mm -hmm. I don't remember them mentioning social media in particular. I think it was more concern about 
there is, you know, this kind of train, you know, pardon the, the cliche or metaphor, but like a train left the station. This is what's happening in society, at least in blue state America, by and large. This is what's happening. We think this is a big mistake. And, and we want to try to get our, our, you know, our voices heard for what we genuinely believe is a, is a mistake regarding public health, you know, policy and intervention. Um, these guys were made and, and women were made to seem to be these like monsters, these, you know, dark horsemen. Um, this is a, a person who spent his career trying to help people with public health. He may have a different view than other people. And this is kind of segues into the Twitter file stuff, Mike, I think just in the sense that this demonization of people, particularly those who have expertise, who have experience in this, this demonization because they had a different view as if they were monsters is one of the greatest harms, this insane sort of caricature of them. And the, the, I could see the pain that he felt that all these people who he thought were his friends and colleagues writing this letter against him, that he was this, you know, and it was, you know, this, this kind of ad hominem, just this terrible person. This is someone, agree or disagree, they genuinely felt and feel you know, that their policy advocacy is the correct path. They're entitled to feel that way and entitled to share their views, even if other people disagree. So I want to ask you about the Twitter files. Uh, this is a branding exercise. I don't know what counts and what doesn't, but you were one of the journalists who had access to Twitter's files. So did you, are you one of the authors of the Twitter files? I, I think so. Yes, I did. I, I mean, I, yes, I, yes. definitively. Right. I'm one of the guys who did the Twitter files. Yes. What did your, what did your <laughs> most, a lot of what we talked about uh, comes from what you found, but what were the other big headlines from what they showed you? The, there are a few things. One, it was clear that the United States government, um, particularly through the executive branch, greatly pressured Twitter, among other social media companies, to moderate its content in a way you know, according to the wishes of the federal government. And we know that one of the um, Twitter executives, there was an email from her where she characterized uh, the White House as being, quote, very angry that Twitter was not doing more to suppress certain voices. Um, and they expressed this to them on, they had numerous meetings about this, that they, they wanted Twitter to quote, de-platform multiple people. So we know that the White House was pressuring, and there is a lawsuit going on now about this because some legal scholars believe that this is indeed a First Amendment violation because they were basically just using social media companies as a vehicle to suppress the free, free speech of these individuals, even if the White House wasn't personally, you know, putting duct tape over someone's mouth. Um, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we know the government was involved, number one. Number two, um, we know that Twitter's policies generally for regarding COVID tended to mirror whatever the CDC said. And in one regard, that seems perfectly reasonable. This is our nation's top, you know, public health agency for infectious diseases. Um, okay. But on the other hand, this, you know, as you've said, this is sort of a theme we're talking about, science is not settled. Look at the amount of things that they got wrong from thinking the vaccines would, you know, stop infection to, you know, first, you know, don't wear a mask. Now you should wear a mask. Oh, wait, cloth, put, put a t-shirt over your face. That's fine. Oh, now we, now they're saying that cloth masks actually don't work. Out. There's a long list of things that we were told were one thing and then changed. That's okay. That's fine. That science changes or that, you know, um, however, what's not okay 
is to silence voices, particularly those of highly credentialed people who are saying something different. The notion to me, Mike, that the CDC is truth. And if you're a medical or public health professional and you say something different from the CDC, that de facto, that is misinformation, that's very scary to me. And but that's there can exactly be, what there I should. can be misinformation that that's falls true. into that category. And so what's Twitter to do in that or any other, uh, let's say, you know, proxy for the public square? What are they to do? I don't know the answer. And it's funny, I talked about this a lot with Barry, um, Barry Weiss, because I, I published my, you know, that sort of a companion piece to my Twitter thread on, on the free press. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I talked with her and also this guy, Michael Schellenberger and some of the others. And, and one of the, one of them said to me, Dave, you don't have to answer that. And I was like, oh, you're right. And, and, and because I don't know the answer to that. What my job, I feel, is to bring information that the public didn't know about yeah. to bring it to light. And I thought at minimum, it is important for people to know, and I gave a whole bunch of examples of this, where credentialed scientists were suppressed or and or where regular people, maybe not some scientists somewhere, but someone was quoting from the CDC's own data, where doctors were quoting from studies published in peer-reviewed journals, and they were nevertheless labeled as misinformation. They were nevertheless um, suspended from Twitter. That's deeply problematic. I don't know the answer as far as how, if you're running a public media, uh, excuse me, a social media platform, and there's just tons of QAnon type bullshit garbage. You want to filter that out, but you don't. The analogy I used in my piece was when you are dragging a trawler, you know, across the ocean, you're going to catch dolphins, even yeah. though, you know, you're just trying to catch the sardines or the other fish, you're going to catch the dolphins. I don't, so I don't know the answer. I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but at minimum, I feel like my job was to bring this to the public for them to know that very legitimate voices were silenced on the platform during the pandemic. And that's deeply, deeply problematic in my view. As I look back, I talked in the beginning about hindsight and the, I, I guess I uh, implied that I'm very frustrated that we haven't even yet been able to adequately apply hindsight and learn lessons. And you know, I estimate maybe it'll take us two decades to do so. But one conclusion I've drawn is that the story of the pandemic and COVID-19 is a story that should cause us great optimism over scientific advancements, but more pessimism than I think I already had over the human aspects and human interactions when it comes to scientific advancement. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't think I would characterize it that way. I mean, we have these political divisions in our country, of course, and those really came to light during the pandemic in some regards. But I don't view it as like a failure of, quote, society, you know, in certain regards about how things played out. I view it more as I I really point the finger at the public health establishment in a lot of regards and and is a failure uh, of, of humility. And there was so much hubris in the way that a lot of the information was conveyed to the public um, that I think was very harmful. And part of that hubris is that, and, you know, degree of certainty with, within which the information was conveyed led to this stuff with like Jay Bhattacharya and others. Um, and as, and I think most people would agree that the way you really advance a society is through robust 
engagement and disagreement and discussion. And in my view, much of the pandemic did not tolerate, you know, much of the sort of powers that be did not tolerate debate and discussion. It was dismissed out of hand, you know, with a wave of the hand. These people are bad. Anyone who advocates for opening schools is a racist, we were called, or things of that nature. So that's how I would view it, Mike. It's more a matter of of some failures of our culture. Um, and I hope that we can move toward debate about things and let the you know best ideas win. It's okay. Not only is it okay, but it's essential to have debate. And that was really suppressed in a lot of ways. David Zweig is a writer for The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The Free Press, Wired, and his book, An Abundance of Caution, is due out this June. David, thanks so much. It's, it's really good talking with you. And that's it for today's show. And tomorrow, it is more lessons from the pandemic. We're going to talk to Michael Schulson, who is a reporter on, especially we're going to talk about that Cochrane mask survey. And we're going to talk to Caitlin Jettelina, who does the Your Local Epidemiologist newsletter on Substack. I think you might disagree with Zweig a little bit, or at least have different takes. So I wanted to bring you all of them. That will be on tomorrow's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is vice president for philanthropy with the organization of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Peru, G Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening.